Well, hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group, where we learn from and celebrate the local leaders, businesses, and nonprofit organizations who have stood the test of Tucson time. I'm your host, Matt Nelson, and I am joined here today by in, at Tucson Business Radio X Studios virtually today by Todd Sadow, President and CEO of Epic Rides, this month to talk about, um, and I'm not often starstruck, but, uh, but with Todd, because uh, I've been a patron of his organization and events for a number of years. Um, we are here to talk about fun and following your passion and how that relates to workplace culture, which um, I think is why I'm perhaps a little starstruck because he has created an organization and series of events that I think really at a personal level encapsulate what I would be looking for. If I was to kind of live my life following my passion and having fun doing it, um, I would hope it would look something like uh, like what you're doing over there at Epic Rides. So. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate uh, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks for having me today, Matt. It's nice to be here. Of course, of course, our pleasure. Well, so for those of you who don't know Todd by name, his organization, Epic Rides, it's the engine behind one of the best known mountain biking and, and really premier cycling events in the United States. It's the 24 hours in the old Pueblo. And it's kind of strange even to describe it uh, just as a cycling race. Um, because I haven't ridden it for a number of years. I think uh, perhaps the best description would be like Burning Man meets a bike race or Burning Man in a party has a bike <laughs> race going on at the same time. Um, but it's when I think of the perhaps the most apt way to synopsize or, or the apt synopsis of, the, of what the event is, you got this blend of Olympic level endurance athletes, local cycling, you know, fast guys, shop heroes, that sort of thing grassroots mountain bikers who are really out to kind of get on the trail and have fun at an event. And then you've got this 24 hour party that's happening in the background with, you know, you have what 3,500 competitors, 7,000 or so people all told at the event most years. And then on top of that, if that wasn't enough, you've got the purpose of the event to go out and raise money and benefit some of both our area and, and national nonprofits that are serving just critical segments of, you know, both Southern Arizona, but, but also kind of across the straight the state and throughout the region. So I don't know, Todd, is that a fair description of the 24 hour event? Mostly accurate. I may, I may, um, I may not confirm nor deny some parts of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, we've been accused of, um, of throwing a party in the desert that happens to have a mountain bike event happening nearby. I think uh, that's probably a much more succinct explanation than, than I could provide, but uh, but 100% <laughs> accurate. So, so let me ask you first, when you think of how the 24 started back in 2000, and you think of where you are right now, how does it feel to hear that description? You know, longest running 24-hour mountain bike rate, uh, mountain bike event in America, among the most iconic perhaps in the United States. When you were back in 2000, kind of getting the ball rolling here, did you have any idea of what you had started and what it was going to become? No, this is purely by accident. Uh, and I, I co-founded the 24-hour race. There was three of us in the beginning. And, um, you know, I think that the idea was always to just give the community a canvas to play with on event weekend. So, you know, provide them, uh, the attendees, a well-organized event, 
and a fun, uh, safe environment to, to feel welcomed at and to do whatever they want with it. And, and in a lot of ways, 24-hour town, which is what we call the venue, uh, which springs up out of primitive desert, uh, you know, once a year, and then we clean it up and leave it better than we found it each, you know, at the end of each weekend. Um, it's really this little, like, sort of glimmering of, of hope for humanity in, in some regard, because everyone out there seems to be on the same wavelength. Um, to your point a moment ago, uh, it's everybody, you know, everyone has the bike in common and, you know, first and foremost, uh, but it's everybody from, you know, I like to say, you know, bike shop wrench to CEO and, and, and everybody in between. And they're on, you know, all these different types of people are on the same teams or their neighbors and, uh, and they share space together all weekend. And, and there's thousands of people uh, going about their lives that are, more than glad to talk to anybody uh, because everybody is fused together by the bike. And, and I don't think that that can be created intentionally. <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it takes everyone um, playing along, you know? So I think we've been really lucky to, to have the community, um, you know, to have the, the Southern Arizona and Tucson community wrap itself around the event the way it has. I think you're right. Now I'm curious because I, I think a lot of people, um, and I wasn't somebody that grew up racing bikes. I, I was a motorcycle guy that, um, you know, I raced off-road motorcycles, got into racing on-road and that sort of thing, and then had a kid. And so, um, you know, I, I was told that I had to make some some safer decisions um, by, by, a, by a wife that is much smarter than I am. And um, so it was like, all right, well, how am I going to find, you know, a way to scratch this itch that I can get the sense of community that I felt in motorcycle racing and the adrenaline rush and all the other stuff. And, and that's, you know, I, I remember, uh, God, I think it was like a fourth hand old Gary Fisher Y-frame mountain bike that, uh, you know, probably weighed about 95 pounds and, uh, you know, thought that I was going to set the world on fire going out, you know, on the, on the trails. Right. And all of a sudden you realize, well, this is harder than it looks. But also I think the the thing that I came to realize not being heavily involved in cycling when I was younger is, you know, it's not this monolithic, group of people, right? Like you said, there's not only the people are different, but I mean, there's even, I don't want to say rifts, but there are different subsections of even mountain biking, right? Where, and, and you cap, you encapsulate that in your event where you've got people that are out there riding, um, you know, a fully rigid single speed bike. And so for those that don't cycle, um, those types of cyclists, I would describe as insane because they're going to ride something with no suspension, bouncing through the desert, uh, with no gears to shift. And they're just going to, some of them are doing it solo and they're just going to suffer by themselves in isolation for 24 hours straight. And then you got somebody that's got the next, you know, $15,000 fully carbon S works full suspension bike with every doodad that you can have known to mankind on the thing. And you've got those people at an event um, competing in different classes, but that even makes it even more crazy when you think about it, because you've got people there for a hundred different reasons and they've got to share for the course of 24 hours, not only a place to live that's got its own stresses, but they've got to share 12 inches of single track and they've got to be able to work with one another to do these, to do this thing safely when they're tired, when they're hungry and they're each there for a different reason. How do you keep that culture going organically? Because that's the sort of thing that I think about if, if we tie that to the overall theme of this podcast, which generally we talk about culture in the workplace. How do you, how do you keep 
an effective culture going in the workplace. But in the workplace, you have hierarchies of discipline and control that, you know, when you look at 24-hour town, I mean, there's some general rules, but a lot of it is just kind of the saying, you know, don't harsh the mellow, be nice. How do you keep that going year after year? Oh, yeah, that the earlier point about a glimmer of hope into humanity. Uh, you know, the, the event is a relay race, right? There are, you're right, there are the people that choose to suffer solo in the solo category, uh, which caps out at 200 riders every year and fills up instantly. Um, but, but everyone else is on a team. And even the soloists have a team, a support team, that, that plays a critical role in their success. Uh, and their success is everything from, you know, winning with riding over 300 miles in 24 hours to just finishing the, their, their goal number of laps, right? Um, but, but that relay, I think the relay, the nature of a relay cultivates the dependence on teammates and, and, and your support crew. And, and I think that that permeates through the entire 24 hour town venue. Um, I think everybody wants to uphold their part of the deal to have the best event weekend and best experience possible. And I think everybody brings their best behavior because of it. Now that said, there's, it is, it is such a look into humanity for, you know, the, the four to, to seven days that everyone lives in 24 hour town together. Um, because everyone shows up very excited. I mean, this is a weekend of the year where it's palpable. The stoke is palpable. It is, and rightfully so, it is such a fun weekend. And it's so meaningful for everyone, like you said, for so many different reasons. It's, it's a really beautiful thing. But the roller coaster that we all ride together is, you know, the excitement that starts two months out, because people are just so excited to get there, to arriving to 24-hour town, to being exhausted at three in the morning in the exchange tent, waiting for your teammate to roll in and hand off the baton. And it's cold, it might be raining, it could be snowing, it could be extraordinarily windy. It could be anything but showing up for your teammate and, and getting through the night to, that, to the sunrise lap, which is the organic burst of energy, into the finish line together, right? And all of that brings fatigue, it brings so many emotional um, hurdles for people that you get to see a little bit of everybody together, but everyone's exposed at the same time, right? So you got thousands of people in one place that all kind of feel tired at three in the morning and are, you know, are zombies, right? And you got people, you got you know, thousands of people that at 6.30 when the sun rises are all collectively happier, right? And it's just a neat, it's a, it's a heck of a human experiment, you know, to, 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 to carry that vibe through and, and to share that with people. I agree. Well, and, and I mean, you think about the people that are riding the race and they're for a reason, right? And then you think about, and, and you know, when, when you're a new guy on the team and, and unfortunately I became kind of our dedicated laps that nobody wanted guy for a number of years. So I was the guy that was out there when it was, you know, dark and cold and many times snowy or windy, you know, at, uh, at two in the morning up until the sun came up. And you would go out and you'd be riding and, and you know you're what 11 miles in and all of a sudden you come to the back half of the course and there are people who have been sitting out by a tree handing you various and sundry adult beverages to keep you going for the for the rest of the uh, for the rest of your lap and i mean it's it's one of those things where it's just incredible when you're when you're sitting there and it's three in the morning and it's freezing and there's still a crowd of people out there that you know, they're not they're not even really, I think, rec they're not recognized volunteers even. They're just people that are there that 
like you said, are caught up in the vibe of the event and recognizing that it's fun and it's fun to be out there and cheer people on. Never mind all the people that are out there volunteering to, to keep the event safe, to be there at the aid stations to help you if you have a breakdown, something like that. I, I agree with you. It's, um, you know, not, don't want to get too far over the skis, but I mean, it's really, it's an incredible glimpse into when you get people in the right environment how much people want to kind of work together and be happy together. It's, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. Um, so, and I think the thing for me, and we were talking about this before we started recording, the thing that was um, perhaps even more incredible to me is that I, for a long time, thought that the oldest event um, in the Epic Rides catalog, and there's, and there are multiple, I thought it was the 24 that, that it all started at. And of course, you were kind enough to let me know that there's actually an event that predates the 24. So you can talk, can you talk a little bit about the Tour of the White Mountains and how that led to what Epic Rides is now? Uh, sure. The, the, so the Tour of the White Mountains will be uh, our first event back um after the pandemic it's scheduled for october 2nd it's in pine top lakeside arizona northeastern arizona and uh it'll be its 25th year it's the oldest uh and longest running mountain bike event in arizona uh and it was it was founded by the navapache regional medical center and and coincidentally they had reached out to uh the person that mentored me uh, to start when I started Epic Rides and taught me the mechanics of a cycling event, uh, Richard DiBernardis, who is the uh, the founder of El Tour de Tucson, and um, so he had helped the the Navapache Regional Medical Center start the event, and then I believe it was after about seven or eight years of producing it that they decided that they wanted to be a hospital and not produce a mountain bike event, and the community didn't want it to go away. And so the, the community encouraged them to reach out to, to us at Epic Rides to see if we were interested in acquiring the event and carrying it forward. And, and it really presented a unique opportunity in that it had this, this tie to Richard, who I've you know, uh, enjoyed and, and appreciated a, a close relationship with over the years. And so it, it, it made a lot of sense for, you know, for that reason and others for us to acquire it and to keep it going. So when you think about, and I, I like the way you set that up, which is the mechanics of a cycling event. Because I think, you know, even with the 24, there's, you know, and I had a similar discussion, as you heard on the podcast, where we were talking with TJ Jeskowitz about the Tour de Tucson, that there is a lot more than meets the eye to getting something like this up and running. You know, when you've got thousands of people showing up, that they have an expectation, right, whether it's informed by historical perspectives or what they're expecting coming into event because it's, you know, I, I want to compete and I want to do this, or I want to just do a fun ride and I want to do that. And then you got to deal with landowners, you know, as, as an example, um, the, the ranch out in uh, out where 24 hour town is at, um, you know, the, the state land agencies, so on and so forth. I mean, there's a ton of logistics that goes into this. So I guess my question to you is I could see in my mind and correct me if I'm wrong, but I could, I could see how, First starting out, it's like, boy, wouldn't it be cool if we could put on a fun event where we could go out and we could ride our mountain bikes and get a couple of hundred people that were similarly, you know, thinking, thinking the same thing of what would be fun to get out and do and maybe have a little competition while we're doing it, right? And that being, this is going to be my passion project. And boy, if I can make a living do th doing that, how cool would it be? 
And I guess my question is, how do you keep the shine from coming off the apple when it's, all right, now I'm dealing with all of the logistics of an event of this scale, trying to make sure people are safe, trying to manage through. And I, I would love to ask you a little bit about the about how the pandemic has affected kind of cycling and, and you know events in general. Um, but I mean, how do you keep your sense of, is this still a passion project? Is this still something I enjoy? Is this fun? When you're dealing with all of the work that goes into a, an event of this size. Wow. That's an incredible question. And in the, in the last year, uh, you know, how has the, the pandemic affected you know, cycling? And there's a lot going on there. Um, you know, when you, it's important to remember sometimes it, it's easy to get caught up in the details of the whole event or all the events and everything going on. Um, but it's really important to recenter once in a while and remember it's just a bike event, a start, a finish line, aid stations, a defined route, and a lot of happy people. If you could check those boxes, you, you have the foundation of a good time. Um, you know, sprinkle in unconditional brand partners, Tucson Medical Center, who's been a sponsor of the 24 Hours in El Pueblo for over a decade now, that, I mean, helps us live, breathe, and eat 24 Hours in El Pueblo each year, you know? Uh, those things, they, the uh, brand partners can grease the wheels. They can make it, uh, um, they can make it easier to get to the start line each year. Um, uh, you know, support from the community events, none of these events could exist without, um, an army of volunteers. There's just so many things that need to happen at the same time. And, and having, you know, community support like that, um, it keeps it fun. You know, the, the, you said the shine on the apple, like, uh, you know, as long as you can stay out ahead of it and, and the coordinating effort, then it really can be a fun experience for everybody. You know, things can only move at the speed of life. And so, you know, it, it, sometimes it can feel like there's a lot swirling around at times, but you got to remember that, you know, things can't go too fast. You know, you, you, can, you can always kind of pause and, you know, take an inventory and move forward. An example would be this last year, um, you know, I don't think anybody could have could have ever expected how you know an unexpected pandemic would um, throttle back some things in our communities in our economy and and throttle forward other things um, right now uh, talking to my friend Steve Morgenstern at a bicycle ranch the other day if you the bike industry the supply chain which is it's not unique to the bike industry but for the bike industry it's so messed up you can place an order for a bike right now and it can arrive either six months from now or up to two years from now, depending on the bike you buy. Uh, so the bike industry is thriving. Somebody, an, another friend in the industry estimated that 5 million new people entered the bike industry, the, you know, as cyclists this last year. Um, but on the same note, we haven't been able to produce an event for a year. So it's really wild to see, um, you know, what this last year has, has meant. I think what it's done is catapulted the amount of participation in the sport forward. And so as we approach this October, this lineup of two events for us, one here in the White Mountains, the Tour of the White Mountains, and the other in Bentonville, Arkansas, the Oz Trails Off-Road, um, fingers crossed, I think we're going to have a lot of demand. I think we're going to have a bumper crop of people at the start lines and, and the host communities are going to see a lot of guests. I, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, um, as somebody who occasionally breaks bike parts, uh, the, the process of getting bike parts is, 
in and of itself challenging. Never mind, never mind a whole bike. That's that's for certain. Which is a good thing because, like you said, I mean, if if while the supply chain problems, I think uh, it'd be nice if those went away. I mean, if if the reason that you can't get a bike part is because there's so many people that are out cycling, you know, in and of itself, that's kind of cool. And yeah. uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a little bit of the good with uh, I'll take a little bit of bad with the good. I guess is is the way that I would look at it. So you know, since you brought up. Uh, well, I guess I brought up, but, but, you know, since we were talking about the pandemic, um, you know, I know that, uh, well, I, let me back up. I guess the way that we actually got connected was through an organization that the 24 benefits, that is an organization that actually the executive director is a friend of mine for a couple of years. And I've volunteered with the organization um, now for a little bit. And it's an organization that, um, you know, I'm passionate about. I know you are. And that's, um, that's bag it for cancer. And, and I think one of the things that's really, really fun about the 24, one of the things that makes it really fun to go out there is to know that, you know, I've, I've raced in other competitive ventures and stuff like that. And, and there wasn't really a purpose attached to it. I mean, you were going out and you were having fun and that was a good thing. And, you know, there was a race organization that was, you know, keeping things going. And their job was, you know, you were a paying customer, but ultimately they were making money off of your experience, right? And and that was the sole purpose for the event. When you can go out to an event, and, and one of the things that I think hits most people right as soon as they try to drive up to it is, you know, there's an ask for a food donation to get into 24-hour town, right? It's like, hey, if you want to be a part of this, we're leading off with an ask. Um and then you've got all the beneficiaries that are highlighted in the events, in the event, including Baggett for Cancer. What was that always the plan? Was that always the plan to make it an agent for community change? Or was that something that you had, you know, you realized, boy, we caught some lightning in a bottle here. I wonder what we could do with it. What was the genesis of that? Uh, that was the early teachings of Richard that, you know, every event should be a fundraising event. And maybe the best reason to summarize why is that we're, like, like we've said, this is a party in the desert. Let's, let's face it. This is a party in the desert. Uh, it's a healthy party. It's a, it's a healthy burning man. If that, you know, if that intersection exists out there. Um, but here we are thousands of people having a really good time and it's only right that we should use our critical mass, leverage our critical mass to, to help people that are at a less um, appealing at a more challenging intersection in their lives. And, and so from the beginning of Epic Rides, we've always had a fundraising component to our events. And, and we really, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Tri-Community Food Bank, which services the Copper Corridor, which is the towns of Oracle and San Manuel and Mammoth and Dudleyville up to boy, uh, Globe um, and all the other small towns between. Um, so we, it's not a small ask, right? When you show up in an RV, you've got, you've got to give 72 cans of food. 72 cans of food to get into 24 hour town. Uh, and, and from that, um, we raise about four tons of canned goods each year, which is, uh, you know, the first or second largest canned good drive for the tri-community food bank each year. And, and that's something that we're very proud of, but it's also something those towns have, have come to rely on. And, and so it's, it's important that we keep the event going so that we can keep making those donations every year to the tri-community food bank. Um, you know, similarly, Bagot is uh, an organization that, as you mentioned, you're very familiar with, uh, that services the cancer-fighting community. Um, you know, when someone gets diagnosed with cancer, uh, you know, first of all, it's, it's unfortunate circumstance, unfortunate news, 
Um, you know, someone near me said it best that when someone's diagnosed, the family is now fighting cancer. It's not just the individual, it's everyone around them, their, their immediate family, their loved ones, their close friends. Um, everybody needs to rally around them and, and they do. And in Bagot's, it really got my attention because they offer amazing resources to everyone that's in that fight. It, it can be disorienting. The, the news of being diagnosed with cancer in itself, just the news can be, can be very disorienting. And sometimes it's hard for people to, to get oriented after that. It's the proverbial punch in the face. Um, and, and Bagot provides a lot of resources, unbiased resources, to people that are recently diagnosed so that they can help them navigate the waters of, of fighting cancer. And I mean, it's like riding a bike. You got to prepare yourself, right? You got to be able to go into every day organized and feeling like you want to fight. And, and Bagot provides those, those resources in a very effective and meaningful way. I couldn't agree more. I, I had like a whole plug lined up, but you, you basically ran away with it. I love it. So I, I'm gonna, I, we're probably going to clip that. I'm not going to lie. Todd. When, I, when I heard what Baggett did, I was like, that's, that's what everybody needs. I know that's what I needed. Like that's, that's what everybody needs right there. So I, I, I pestered them. <laughs> Which you don't often find somebody saying, hey, look, I really need you to be a beneficiary of my event. Like we got to, yeah. It's usually yeah. much the other way around. Now, and, and I'll tell you, it's, um, well, I, I was thrilled when, when I had the opportunity to reach out to you as part of, you know, we were kind of doing our yearly thankathon, reaching out to all of our donors and just saying, hey, look, you know, we really appreciate the fact that you're continuing to be a part of the organization. It, it matters. And um, yeah, of course, like I said, when I, when I saw your name pop up, I, I got mildly starstruck. And so we talked a little bit about that, which was <laughs> but so coming back to the question of COVID then, because like you said, you know, there are a lot of organizations that, you know, they've come to depend on this event and the impact that it makes. And so last year, you know, of course, um, in the interest of rider safety, uh, and I think, you know, that you know, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody that would disagree with that, that in the interest of keeping people safe while we figure the world out here, um, the responsible decision, even knowing the potential consequences, is to push this event out. And so I can't imagine how hard of a decision that was because, you know, I mean, when you've, when you've done such a good job of capturing an, a, a population of people that are just, everybody's on the same wavelength and it's just working and it's organic, I don't know about you, but it's like you almost kind of, I, you would have to almost wonder like, gosh, if I touch this bubble, is it going to pop? You know, are we going to, are we going to, are we going to lose this thing? Cause we've worked so hard and it's just working so well. And here we go. Now we got to find out if it, if it can make it. Um, what did you learn? What, if you had to distill one thing you learned out of that whole experience and where you think that takes things going forward, what, what would that be if you had to think of it? This is where you're really going to wish I'd gotten you a question in advance. <laughs> uh, and this is specifically about the 24? Well, the 24 or in general, but, but it seems like, I mean, the 24 seems like an instructional opportunity, but, but if you think there's a better one, I'd, I'd love to hear it. No, well, I, maybe there's a part two to this answer. Uh, what I learned is if you do the right thing, people will applaud you. I mean, I, I think deep down I wanted to, you know, I, I hoped I already knew that, but I got reaffirmed. You know, maybe that's 20 plus years into my career, you, you get reaffirmation more, you know, and that, that's important too, right? Um, uh, yeah, having to cancel the 24-hour race, the, 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 what would have been the 22nd year for it, 
um, was no easy decision, but it was the right decision. And, and, and breaking that news as much as it, it, you know, literally broke the hearts. I mean, we had an email from a 14 year old boy in, in Phoenix that said, you broke my heart. I was training for that. And I wanted to have my best year there. And I mean, it, it broke hearts. Right. Um, and that hurt to get that kind of a response. But, but I think everybody also knew that it was the right thing. It wasn't the time to gather. It wasn't the time to bring thousands of people together, you know, out in the desert, you know, even though we had, with great input and supervision, um, uh, you know, from from Tucson Medical Center and and from uh, the health department and, and the permitting agencies in Pinal County and so forth, um, uh, it, it there's there, it just would have been too taxing on on the public infrastructure, um, you know, testing everybody for for COVID and stuff ahead of time. Um, I think we had a, a really good idea on how to do it safely, but it didn't mean that it was the right time to do it. And, and for everyone to say, we applaud you for canceling it, we'll see you next year, is I think the best consolation you could ever ask for, right? I, I don't think that we, we popped the bubble. I, I couldn't agree more, because I am, believe me, uh, as, as sad as I was to see it canceled, um, all it did was make me say, all right, I've got some extra time to train for the next one coming up. Um, and I'm super excited for the one coming up. And I know that's kind of the same thing across, uh, across the guys of our, uh, relatively slow, but, but highly enthusiastic team. So, um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, like you said, at, at the end of the day, it is a bike race and, you know, there's, especially when you think of in the early days, which is right when the race would have been right. It was when we were just barely finding this thing out, um, yeah, uh, as hard as a decision as that that had to be, um, I'm, I'm glad that you made it because it made it a lot easier for a lot of other people to be able to say, okay, the decision's been made for me. This is this is what we're doing going forward. And sometimes it takes a leader uh, to, to step up and do that. So, yeah. you know, when we opened registration, it was the beginning of November. And when we had started preparing for it, it was August, uh, you know, so August, September, October. And, and during that time period, if you'll recall, our COVID counts were looking very favorable. It, it seemed like we were going in the right direction. So we were making decisions based on real-time data, but we, we certainly didn't anticipate well, you know, what the, the, you know, the, the bounce back that it was going to have, the resurgence. Um, but then when it did, it, you know, it was evident, you know, the decision we needed to make. Yep, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, we're at the bottom of the hour, so let's take a quick break here. For those of you who are just joining us, this is Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance. As the largest locally owned and operated insurance brokerage in Southern Arizona and one of the top 100 insurance agencies in the United States, Crest is your hometown broker to assist with commercial insurance, workers' compensation, and employee health insurance plans. And with that, Todd, we'll jump back into it. So, you know, one of the things that we had talked to uh, or talked about was, you know, there are multiple events now, right? So there's Canyon City, there's uh, Bentonville, there's the Tour of the White Mountains. Um, and one of the things that, I didn't grow up in Tucson, um, but having moved down here, and, and once I got into cycling, it really struck me that for the size of the city that we're in, um, and kind of the area of the country we're in, which is kind of a little out of the way, um, we've got this amazing proliferation of, you know, we've got some solid manufacturers up in the Phoenix area. We've got some signature events with the 24 hour and the tour to Tucson. And then you kind of look around the area. There's, there's just, there's a lot going on down here in 
cycling. What do you think it is? I mean, there's the weather, of course, and there's the availability of land and whatnot. But, you know, why why Tucson for an event like this, as opposed to a big city like, you know, picking a mountain range and a trail system outside of Phoenix, for example, where you've got three times the people and, you know, a, a bigger airport and that sort of thing. What what do you think it is about Tucson that made this event just able to thrive here when you when you look at where you could have placed it? Well, uh, I, I do, you know, the point that it is, it's, the weather here is phenomenal. Tucson in February is hard to beat. Um, we do have a, a really strong cycling community here. And I think that El Tour de Tucson um, has been the impetus for that. It's been the anchor of our cycling community. And it's carried it really well since its inception. Uh, you know, it, it has historically brought really high level cyclists into our community to experience the quality of riding here. And, and that's just, you know, it's grown over 35 years at this point, right? So there's just this monstrous reputation. And I think um, our Epic Rides events, uh, you know, we're now at six events in four states. We've got the 24 Hours No Pueblo here uh, just outside Tucson. We've got the Whiskey Off-Road in Prescott that starts and finishes on Whiskey Row. Uh, the Grand Junction Off-Road in Grand Junction, Colorado. Um, Carson City Off-Road in Carson City, Nevada, just over the the eastern edge of the Sierra Nevada from Lake Tahoe. And, and then from there we go uh, over back to Arizona for the Tour of the White Mountains and then over to Arkansas for the Oz Trails Off-Road. And all of our events are designed to be destination-worthy events. So you know, rather than put on, produce an event in Phoenix, uh, we'd rather produce an event in Prescott where it's a one-hour drive for Phoenicians and everybody else you know, in the region um, to get to a destination-worthy town where they can have a unique experience. They can get outside of their comfort zone, uh, go ride new trails and uh, be challenged and, and have a fun um, traveling sort of adventure. You know, um, I would say mountain bikers would be great third, third world travelers because they're just so open-minded. You know, things don't need to go perfect. You know, and they, they kind of enjoy it when they don't. They like, they like the not knowing and, and understanding how to deal with that, right? So, you know, on a ride, if you get a flat, it's okay. Um, I think our, our events sort of represent that culture. You know, we, we try to tie those things together for their experience. So, um, you know, rather than having the 24 hours in the old Pueblo and in, in the center of, you know, Papago Park in Phoenix, uh, it seems to be really well received in that it's off the grid, 20 miles north of Tucson, 12 miles down a dirt road, kind of hard to get to, and in our own little world for, you know, three to seven days. And how about you, personally? Why Tucson for you? Um, what's the, what's the, what's the thing that I mean? Because I look at again from somebody who didn't grow up here, Tucson has been an incredibly sticky place, right? Where I, I spent some time. I went, I went to school somewhere about ninety-three miles north of here, small, small public university, um, and uh, and ended up going, you know, coming down here afterwards, and really, I had no idea what I was getting into, and that was. 16 years ago. And, and really it's when people ask me, you know, what keeps me in Tucson, you know, it's like, it's this amazing combination of them that like, there's this incredible population of people that are fun and they're friendly and they're active and open and engaging. There's a great, for me professionally, there's a great business community where um, people are interested in running businesses that 
make a difference. They want to support local organizations. They care about their community. You know, and those are things that I think oftentimes get lost in the, in the mix when you're in a larger place. When I was stationed on the East coast, you know, it was, it, it didn't feel that same way. And so anytime I talk to somebody who's got, you know, something that's working here, I'm always curious. I mean, what is it that, you know, what has your experience been with Tucson? Is it the same? Is there, you know, and, and when you compare places where you're trying to expand your organization's reach, again, it seems like with the events, you're able to repeatedly capture that same experience, you know, through the destination and everything like that. I mean, is it, is there a science to it? Do you just go kind of like spend some time when you're looking at Bentonville? And I know they've got a great trail system in Bentonville, but you know, do you just kind of go out there and bring a bike and ride around a little bit and kind of get a feel or is there a science to it? How do you guys pick the next destination for Epic? Uh, so I, I love Tucson. I, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I got to watch the, the beginning of the Renaissance for, for downtown Fort Worth. Uh, I came to Tucson for the U of A and then stumbled into starting Epic Rides the day I finished college at the U of A, studied marketing and, um, so, was, you know, and, and I've always been a cyclist since I was a young, uh, you know, young kid, I was racing road bikes and so forth. And so to combine my two passions, it was, it was sort of what I wanted to do. And, you know, for it to have become Epic Rides, it's maybe by accident or, or just, you know, fortuitous circumstance. And, um, but I, I had left Tucson, I, I renovated Park Place Shopping Center as my first, you know, job out of college. And then General Growth Properties moved me to San Jose, California. Um, but I, I chose to come back when Epic Ride started to show that it might have some potential to be a real business. Um, I, I left that corporate opportunity, corporate fast track and, and came back to do Epic Rides full time because I wanted one, I wanted to do something in the bike industry. And two, um, I wanted, I didn't think I was done in Tucson. I felt like there was still a lot of opportunity here for me. And, and, and one of those opportunities was just the development that Tucson was taking on, you know, being in San Jose, that's, that's, you know, that's Silicon Valley, right? The place has just popped, you know, time and time and time again. And to get into that, it was probably a different, I didn't see myself breaking into that community. Um, but I had been racing all through college on the mountain bike and I'd really gotten to know Arizona. I'd really gotten to know Tucson outside of the U of A bubble. And, and I liked what I saw and I felt like I, I had a life to live here. So that's what drew me back here and made me want to cultivate epic rides from Tucson, you know, not move to Phoenix or, or elsewhere. Um, and I think a, a point of pride is having been able to be, to ride the train of Tucson's development over the last two decades and, and to feel like I've contributed to it as well as been able to just flat out enjoy it. You know, Tucson's got so much character. It's, it's maintained its soul in such a beautiful way as it's grown over the last two decades of being here. And, and I love sharing that with everybody on, on the weekend of the 24 hours in El Pueblo. I, and, and, you know, to your question about other venues, um, I, we strive to create, we strive to figure out each host community's town, like their, their mountain bike culture and, and all the pieces that we know align with mountain bikers so that when we do introduce a new event, that when we have an event weekend, it gives people that, that comparable experience. We're giving them a, a very, um, a very rich three or four day visit of, of that community's bike culture so that they get to kind of ride the wave of Prescott, Arizona or of Grand Junction, Colorado. 
and say, you know, oh, I've ridden in Grand Junction. It's amazing. And oh, by the way, have you been to Taco Party or been 303 or, you know, all the amazing restaurants that we all love to go eat at because we just went out on the road 30, 40, 50 miles and have earned our right to eat, you know, and, and drink a craft beer and, and listen to live music and just have a blast, you know? What do you think, um, and you brought it up because I know both you and I are kind of roadies. I describe myself as a reluctant roadie where, um, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's, there are days that I just can't get the, the bike into the back of the truck and, and get out to the trail before it's going to be too hot, too dark, too cold, or too early, whatever excuse that, I, that I'm putting in front of me. So it's like, all right, I'm going to hop on the road bike. Um, what if, uh, if you were to contrast the differences between a road cycling event like the Tour de Tucson um, and what you're, you know, what you're doing with the 24 hour. I think you, you know, one thing you said is that, and I would agree with you, you know, mountain bikers are a little less high strung, perhaps, you know, a little bit more receptive to things not going quite the way you planned. And perhaps that's incumbent with the fact that many times when you're riding, you know, you'll, uh, you'll have a plan as to how your ride's going to go. And then you find yourself picking cactus out of you saying, all right, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> but, you know, have you ever thought about getting into organizing road cycling events, having competed in it and so on and so forth? Or is there a reason that you stay on the mountainside? You know, um, first off, I'm a huge, like I, a huge roadie these days. <laughs> I've been seeing you on Strava. You do a lot of road miles. It's true. <laughs> my, you know, one of the best parts of the pandemic is that my wife got into road cycling. And so we get to share that. And, and so I, we are, we are a roadie household these days. Proudly. Uh, you know, I, I think the rule of thumb is that um, mountain bike miles are, are, you know, the same effort as half the road miles. So a hundred mile road ride would be like a 50 mile mountain bike ride, you know? Right. Um, what was the question? <laughs> the question, I guess, uh, as an event organizer, you know, and, and you're trying to kind of cater to the people that want to participate. Oh, right. yeah. Have you ever thought about, especially as a previous competitor, um, have you ever thought about hosting a road race? What would be different trying to host a road race? And would that be good or bad in your eye? Well, so we, we definitely have um, road event uh, mechanics sorted because our Epic Ride series events, different from the 24 Hours in Old Pueblo presented by Tucson Medical Center, uh, different from that event, uh, it, it, you know, being completely remote, all of the other ones start and finish in the downtown of the communities that, that host the events. And so we've got a road, a paved uh, egress and ingress to get to and from the start finish line. So we've got traffic control and, and closures and so forth sorted out on a smaller level though, right? We're not talking about hundred miles of pavement. We're talking about you know, seven to 10. Um, so fundamentally we have an understanding for it, but you know, the Epic Ride series is, you know, for lack of a better example, it's the off-road version of Ironman. And, and so we've developed a series that took us, you know, the better part of, you know, five, seven years to, to create the whiskey off road, to make that into the model event and then start expanding throughout the country. And, and so, you know, although tempting to go to the road or even, you know, gravel cycling is very popular right now. Um, I think it's more important to stick to our core competency, uh, mountain biking as a, a sport and a discipline within cardio events um, continues to be very strong there's uh, a lot of things that continue to develop and lean in its favor. Uh, everything from um, female participation growing uh, significantly in mountain biking to which it's, you know, historically has been very male dominated. And thankfully that's not the case anymore. It's becoming 
um, it's evening out as far as participation. And, and the most pronounced entry into the sport right now is youth. Uh, you know, for, for the first time, and I don't know the history maybe of, of school sports, of, of interscholastic sports, um, mountain biking is now uh, in over 30 states uh, in America is in middle schools and high schools. So, so children, youth can choose mountain biking as a sport over stick and, traditional stick and ball sports. So, whereas, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe someone didn't feel comfortable putting on helmets and shoulder pads to go play football. Um, now they have an option to be a mountain biker. And I think we're at 36 states right now. Um, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, Association NICA, uh, is the, the, the parent organization that oversees it. And, um, and Arizona of, you know, of, of the 30 plus states has a thriving middle school and high school cycling league um, called Arizona Cycling Association. And uh, so, you know, all those things uh, lend themselves towards a stronger mountain biking ecosystem. And, and Epic Rides very much is, is you know, positioned itself as the, the definitive mountain bike experience. And so, you know, although I absolutely enjoy road miles these days, um, I, I want us to stay focused and, and continue building our, our event footprint to a national footprint uh, from coast to coast. So I, I had a two-part question, and I think you, you answered the first part, which was I was going to ask you what makes you optimistic um, about, you know, kind of cycling and, and mountain biking and just just generally and, and Correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard uh, much the same thing that makes me excited, which is with more people getting involved in it, especially young people. Um, you know, I was somebody that grew up playing stick and ball sports. I loved playing football and everything like that. But um, part of that was because that was what was available. And I, I have to think, especially when I see young people out on the trails now, that if it was available to me as a competitive endeavor, I would have loved to get into competitive mountain biking in, in, at, the, at a high school age. And so I'm tremendously optimistic. Um, about the more and more young faces. And as you said, you know, seeing uh, men, women, you know, just, I mean, seeing the sport become more accessible just in general, where you see all kinds of people out there having fun. It's not, you know, there isn't as much of a, you, you couldn't just draw a picture of what a mountain biker looks like anymore, which is fantastic. Um, so are there any things that concern you about, you know, kind of what you see in cycling and, you know, I know we've talked about, for example, one of the organizations that um, I, I know I'm a member of, I know you support, um, and I'm, I'm sure you're a member of, but Sonoran Desert Mountain uh, Bicyclists, their trail advocacy organization, they do great work uh, in Southern Arizona, both building, maintaining trail, kind of advocating for additional land. And I know one of the things that they've expressed some concern in with this massive influx of people into this hobby is, and, and in some cases, competitive endeavor is, you know, trying to maintain both the, I guess you could say at some level, the sustainability of it, right? So that's taking care of our trails, protecting our public lands and things like that. Um, but also trying to maintain some of that atmosphere that makes it feel so special, right? Without being so attached to it that you don't allow it to involve. But is there anything else that, that you see that you say, man, this is something that we need to be cognizant of as we go forward as a you know, as a hobby and a sport and an industry sort of thing. I think that the, the concern of the Sonoran Desert Mountain Bicyclists, which is Southern Arizona's trail advocacy, mountain bike trail advocacy club um, or organization, I think their concerns are, are well-placed. Um, we need to keep educating uh, 
new people that are coming into the sport on trail etiquette, uh, not just about mountain biking, but other trail users to make sure that we have peaceful interactions with hikers and equestrian and trail runners. Um, and I think that, you know, that's probably the biggest hurdle is trail development, but it, it's also something that makes me feel really promising towards the future because, you know, having watched over 20 years of trail development and, and the conversations at the table that lead to the, to the trail maintenance and, and trail installation, um, mountain bikers just continue to become a more pronounced voice, a more constructive voice at the table to, to get to successful conclusions. Um, you know, on a national level, the 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 ability for you know for all communities that have trail advocacy clubs which is prevalent it's it's less common for a community to not have one than to have one um the 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 progress they can make because of all the tools available to them whether it's from the international mountain bike association or um you know just friendly relationships with other trail advocacy clubs uh it, it's phenomenal so I, I think that, you know, yes, we need to be mindful. We need to keep uh, developing trails that can handle the capacity of people entering into the sport and, and, and provide all trail users a, a good place to go for all levels of trail users. It's important. Um, but if we, if we can maintain momentum, then I, I feel like, you know, the outdoors can be everybody's playground. I agree. And, you know, I got one more, and again, it's a two-parter for you, but it ties back to something you brought up, which was the path you were on out of college, right? So in the corporate space, working for, you know, a commercial development company, general growth properties, doing malls. Um, and so cycling was, was a part of things, right? At, you know, part of things at the time, you know, as a, as a hobbyist, but it sounds like, you know, the business was kind of still like this idea, right? So I guess first part of the question, how does that process with a business education, um, as much as it pains me to say, from a very good business college down here at Eller, um, but, uh, so as you're, um, as you're pitching that business plan to yourself and you've got, all right, I'm on path a, um, what if I take everything that path, that path a that's working and I'm going to, I'm going to make a jump and my business plan is I'm going to build a mountain bike race slash experience series. And that's going to be how I make my living in the world for the foreseeable future. I mean, what was that decision process like when you were kind of, you know, doing your SWOT analysis and figuring out like, all right, is this something that I can actually do that? Cause it does seem like in a lot of ways, you know, your average business class would sit down and say, boy, that sounds a little bit too good to be true. Um, you know, don't know if I'd bet the farm on it. Or did you know, like, nope, this has got legs. This is going to go. I know it. And it's going to work. What was, what was that like? There are 400 event t-shirts that were shipped to Honduras floating around there after the third year of the 24 hours, no Pueblo, second year of the 24 hours, no Pueblo, because we missed our goal by 400. We were so, we we're so optimistic that we would grow so much. <laughs> and a friend was going to Honduras and she said, Hey, I can bring all these. I said, great, bring them and let's get them on people that need them because we're not going to use these. <laughs> There's a word for that. I remember from business school, retrenchment. Retrenchment is an important strategy. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, um, maybe more on a more serious note. Um, so I was definitely uh, well positioned with general growth. Um, and, and I was lucky to have some friends uh, in high places there. 
And when I had shared with them what I wanted to do, hey, I think I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to Tucson. And then I'm going to start this cardio event promotion company. That's basically what I was referring to it as. Because that's basically all I knew I was getting into. Uh, and, and they said, hey, go. Because when we were your age, we wish we would have done it too. And, and if it doesn't work, call us and we'll hire you back. And that was, that was the parachute that I, not only I needed, but my parents needed to hear, right? I mean, here's my loving parents that supported me through the U of A and, um, and were really proud of me to have, you know, moved into a career and to put that on hold or, or otherwise. Mom, <laughs> dad, I got an idea. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I wasn't letting go of the idea. And I think, you know, you're right. There's, it's not a smart risk. And I was young enough and dumb enough and, and had enough energy. And, and in a great way, I was fortunate enough to run into Richard because he took me under his wing. He was exceptional at teaching me, uh, which is, I can, as the U of A can attest, no small task. Uh, and, and, and I, so I got, I got, you know, they say it's better to be lucky than good. I got lucky. I got real lucky. And, uh, you know, had I not run into Richard and, and had that, that cultivation for a decade in his office, you know, no, you, there's so many roadblocks that come up in producing events that if you don't have someone there to, to, to guide you through it, uh, I don't, I, we just never would have made the progress we did. Right. Um, you know, the, I think the biggest takeaway is mentorship. Uh, you know, for anyone listening, be a mentor or, or, or find, if you're young and starting, find a mentor. Mentorship is such a, a critical role in success. And, and to, to, to be able to play a role in someone else's success should be very gratifying otherwise. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And uh, you, you have this remarkable knack for predicting what the next question was going to be, which is, um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was going to ask you um, if somebody listening, because you took if if you think about a person listening that says boy i'd love to do something for a living in the in the cycling industry right or any industry if you're passionate about motorcycles i can't tell you how many guys that are raced with they were like oh man if i could just find a way to get paid to do this that'd be fantastic right but inside your mind you're like all right well if i want to work in the cycling industry it's like boy i gotta go find a manufacturer and i'll start at the bottom working with them, or I'm going to go find a, maybe an event company and start working at the bottom with them, or I'm going to go find a magazine or something like that and go find it, you know, start working the bottom up from them. Not many people have it in them to say, I want to work in the cycling industry. And you know what, I'm going to write my script from the ground up, right? I'm, I'm not going to take whatever somebody else is kind of mapped out as the job path for me. I'm just going to build it. Um, which is, tremendously inspirational. And so I guess the, the gist of my question was going to be, um, if somebody listening was to say, boy, that sounds awesome, this life that Todd has, I want that to be mine, what would you tell them? And, and I'll, I'll hazard a guess at a couple of the, the gems that you had kind of sprinkled throughout the previous answer, and then maybe you can fill in the gaps on top of that. But, but it sounded a lot like, like you said, you need a mentor, right? You need to find somebody who's invested in your success. Um, the the point where you described to the people above you at GGP what your plan was, if it sounds like a key to that was authenticity, maybe that that you know that she said, hey, look, you know, like this is what I want to have a go at, 
And I, I don't know, I, I personally believe that people like to see people make a run at something if it's authentic and they want to be there to help you if you've kind of dared greatly and maybe it didn't pan out. And next thing you know, you're taking 400 extra t-shirts to Honduras, that sort of thing. But <laughs> what, what else, if somebody was listening and they're staring at the path in front of them and they're like, boy, this is the big path that it feels like I'm supposed to go down but this is the one I want to, whether it's in cycling or any other passion. I mean, is there anything else that you would look at and say, these are things to keep in mind from now, 20 some years later of you doing that? Be realistic. You know, I, again, I was, I was young enough and dumb enough, right? You know, fast forward 20 years, I'm, I've got a family. This, this wouldn't have been a good pursuit to start now, right? Uh, so I think it's important to be prudent um, it's important to, to understand that the entrepreneurial pursuit, it, it can be a heavy lift. So you, know, you got to have the appetite for, for work. And you know, that, that's the, uh, the, the double-edged sword in that I'm, I'm extraordinarily passionate about bikes. I, I, I truly, to my core, feel like the world would be better if everybody went for a bike ride. And I, that's my goal, right? I want to get more people to go for a bike ride. Mountain bike ride, all the better. Um, so I think that it's important to, to be, to be honest with yourself. Is this something that you're passionate about? You know, can you wake up day after day and, and with your nose on the grindstone and, and put forth the effort you need to, to forge forward and create something? Um, you know, is there a market for it? You know, it's, it's, you know, I was, I was, I was lucky, you know, I mentioned Richard, I, I've been really lucky to be surrounded by a lot of really smart people. You know, I, I feel like I'm usually the, the, the least intelligent one in the room. And thankfully, they help guide you know, where I need to look, what I need to think about. And, 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 and you know, those are all you know, critical pieces in, in deciding whether or not, you know, an entrepreneurial pursuit is, is right for somebody. You know, do you have the people around you to support the effort and point you in the right direction or help you think straight when you, you know, your passion might be overbearing on what realistic, what could be realistic, right? Right, right. That's, I, yeah, I, I really can't think of a better piece of advice or a better way to, to kind of leave it with, with anybody who might be looking to, uh, you know, to kind of pursue a passion. So, um, well, I'll tell you, first and foremost, Todd, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I really enjoyed the, the conversation here. Um, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the tour of the White Mountains. I've not historically had a chance to ride it. So registration, I know, opens up here pretty quick. And um, so I'm excited to, to have a go at it this year for the first time and uh, definitely counting the days down for, for the 24. So I look forward to uh, look forward to seeing you out there. And for now, until then, I'll just have to have to follow you on Strava and, and maybe we'll run into one another someday out on the road bike. So Todd, Thanks, uh, Todd Sadow, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. President and CEO of Epic Rides. Um, for all of you who have taken the time to, uh, to join us today, thank you for, uh, for sharing a portion of your day with us. And we look forward to catching you next month. This is Matt Nelson with Culture at Work in Tucson and Todd Sadow, President and CEO of Epic Rides. Take care.